Welcome to Stories from 400 Feet, the podcast that gives you the inside story on what is happening in the drone industry, from the everyday to the not-so-everyday events that define this industry and push it forward. If a drone flies, we'll be there. Hi, I'm Danielle Gagne, Chief Storyteller for Volatis Aerospace, and today I am joined by Lieutenant Colonel Melody Lake. And she's been instrumental in helping out with Maria Aid. And it's just an honor to have you here on the program. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to decide to work with Mariah Aid? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think like many people on the night of the 23rd of February back here, I, I was up all night just watching with disbelief what was happening, what was unfolding, and feeling super helpless. Having been deployed in Ukraine from uh, March to October of 21 and, and gotten to know so many people and seeing how, how dedicated this force was and the people were and getting to know them and, and truly respect them and seeing the progress that they were making and now watching what they were dealing with, um, so many of us felt just completely helpless and and, and we understood that as military members, you know, our first job is to make sure that we're ready and that our unit is ready if, um, if the government were to call us. But we knew we could do more as well. Many of us were getting calls from, from friends or colleagues, getting messages, you know, saying, hey, we're, we're fighting in this area. We need this equipment. We don't have this. Is there anything you can do to help? Um, and there were enough of us getting those messages that we just kind of figured that if we pulled together, we could probably do more to assist more of the people who are reaching out to us. So we came together on a Saturday afternoon, just a bunch of, you know, just a bunch of regular people who were very bothered by what they were seeing and very motivated to do something. We didn't know exactly what we were setting out to do, but as we looked at the skills and the capabilities of the people coming together, we realized, you know, there, there was some real potential to do something meaningful in terms of the delivery of non-lethal military equipment and tactical medical gear, but also helping out where we could on the evacuation front. We had, you know, several members of our team who were already working with some of our former linguists on the ground from Up Unifier, helping to get the families of some of the soldiers we worked side by side with, getting them out of the country so that, you know, it was one less thing for those folks to worry about. So we kind of settled on on those three efforts initially and and just started to work from there. And it grew and expanded and kind of pulled in more more like-minded partners and have been getting to do some really, really phenomenal work with some some wonderful people. Your story is so inspirational. You're taking this feeling of helplessness and transforming it into action. It's also great to see how many amazing women like yourself are involved in this project. Can you talk a little bit about what everyone has been able to accomplish since you started it? Yeah, it has certainly grown far beyond what I expected. But just to double back for a second on what you were talking about there, I mean, one of the things I enjoy most about this is the phenomenal women that I'm getting to work with who are just, you know, so dedicated and like-minded and and professionals in whatever realm they are, whether they're military or civilian, whether they're Canadian or Ukrainian, again, some of our you know, the phenomenal people that I got to work with on Operation Unifier are working with us now, um, all of us in volunteer capacities. That part has been 
has been really inspiring. And uh, every now and then we get together, just the women of our team. Maybe we shouldn't tell our uh, <laughs> the rest of our, our group, but we get together just for that, you know, sort of boost that comes with seeing the good that can happen when, when you have people like this coming together. So where it's gone, um, again, we started off with this idea that units would reach out to us and we'd do our best to to pull in whatever we could based on what their needs list was. But as we started looking at this, we realized, you know, no one can be Amazon besides Amazon. Um, we can't be Amazon for Ukrainian field units. So we decided instead to focus on some of those key outcome changing pieces of equipment that um, that we could focus on, that we knew everybody needed, had a, a, a significant impact on the ground, and that we could work to find reliable suppliers, if we concentrated on, you know, some key items rather than trying to do everything, we could probably have a bigger effect. So understanding the tremendous advantage that was stemming from being able to see and fight at night and take advantage of Russian vulnerabilities in terms of their lack of night fighting equipment, we really, we certainly prioritize that. So um, thermal capable drones and night vision equipment, thermal optics, that kind of stuff. But Many of us who had worked on Operation Unifier also saw this as an opportunity to, you know, we truly believed in our mission there. And we saw this as an opportunity to carry on some of those lines of effort. And one of the things we really focused on was enabling success and survivability. Tactical medicine is a huge piece of that. So, you know, we, we kept hearing over and over the need for individual first aid kits, tourniquets. And, and those are truly like, again, outcome changing pieces of equipment. So that was another area where, where we really wanted to focus. Then, you know, an area close to my heart, engineer equipment, um, we had, you know, a tremendous partner step up and donate really valuable engineer equipment that could be used to clear some of that explosive threat that was, you know, certainly emerging very visibly from those areas that, like Bucha, that had been liberated in Irpin. Just seeing, you know, that was something that we learned a lot about while we were on the ground there. The Ukrainian engineers were very good about sharing their lessons learned from the JFO, the Joint Force Operation Area, where they have been fighting in the Donbass for eight years, sharing Russian TTPs and, you know, helping us learn and understand the type of explosive threat they were facing and the wide-scale prevalence of booby traps. Um, so that was a really important line of effort for us as well, because again, it was another area that felt like a continuation of our training close to my heart as a combat engineer, but also, you know, so meaningful and a way to support the military's efforts to give that terrain safely back to the civilian population as they move back in. Absolutely. Even in World War II, they were burying bombs and things like that, and they're still finding them today. And it's a real hazard. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's horrific. I mean, it's a threat. Um, it's a hazard that will linger for years and years and generations. Um, but it's also, you know, I'm inspired to see how the Ukrainians are already stepping up and they're prepared and they are, you know, they are looking at the next bound. They're looking at being prepared for the day after this conflict ends for, for countering that head on. Actually, Uliana, who was my language cultural advisor on Operation Unifier, like she's spent time now in Kosovo at their Mine Action Center, translating, interpreting for for Ukrainian trainees who are coming through and learning to demine, including actually from the National Guard of Ukraine. They just had their first female sapper graduate from that program, and she's now, you know, going to be in action demining on the ground on her home soil. So it's, um, you know, 
the the dedication and resolve. You're never short of inspiration uh, when working with with the Ukrainians. No, there hasn't been a moment where I've seen any lack of perseverance in this invasion. You're talking a little bit about what you were doing earlier on and how you built these relationships. For people who might not know what the Canadian government was doing in Ukraine, can you tell a little bit? Yeah, no problem. So Canada started Operation Unifier in 2015 in response to the Russian invasion of Crimea and the onset of the war in the Donbass. And it was initially focused on lower level training, like direct training of Ukrainian battalions on some of the basic soldier skills like marksmanship and lower level combined arms, medical training, the the sort of stuff to, you know, get you to initially survive and get you through the next day of the fight. But they were evolving so quickly that our mission had to evolve to keep up with them. Um, so by the time I was there on rotation 11, we were focused split on supporting their path to NATO interoperability and enabling success and survivability in the JFO. So that meant like getting into their professional military education facilities, both on the officer and non-commissioned officer side. And this is one of the areas I think like we're seeing a really big impact now. It was introducing the concepts of mission command, where you empower your your leaders at all level with clear intent, but you give them the freedom of maneuver to make decisions and take action and initiative on the battle space. So it makes your decision process that much faster than building of the non-commissioned officer corps like that. I mean, for us in the Canadian military and in many NATO militaries, um, our NCO corps is the backbone of our organization. Like those are the people that, you know, they're, they're our technical experts. They maintain the discipline and good order and make sure your equipment is ready to go and like all of those key, key functions. And they're that first level of leadership. So that was like an NCO course, developed, professionalized NCO course where basically non-existent in the old Soviet system. And I would say today in the Russian military and Ukraine just embraced that. And they built these leadership academies for NCOs that we were privileged enough to support. Um, and like, you know, I get to hear stories directly of how these NCOs are making a difference on the battlefield today. So, you know, that's something I'm, I'm so happy we had the opportunity to do. Then we also focused on individual training, so helping build sniper programs and reconnaissance programs, training engineers, training combat medics, um, artillery, uh, a lot of different facets there, and then continued on sort of the origins of the mission with combined arms training. So that's, you know, getting all of those different trades on the battle space, working and training together. We worked on that in Combat Training Center Shirokiland down by Mikolaev, where Brigade size elements would come through on a rotational training basis to get ready before they would go deploy to the Joint Force Operations Area. So before they would go fight, they would come, go through this training program, eight weeks long, really harness and refine their combined arm skills on the defense and the offense, and then go off and fight. So it was a very comprehensive mission. It certainly sounds like it. And that must have built a really strong relationship between Canadian forces and Ukrainians that I can imagine when the invasion happened, it must have been a major blow. It hit people very hard. It hit people hard um, because these are our friends. I mean, we've been training there for 12 rotations. So, you know, about seven, seven and a half years of Canadians rotating through there. And 
you know, the, the beauty of the mission was that it was such a partnership. Like we were learning as much from them as they were from us. And it was just, you know, we, we saw eye to eye on so much and just worked together so well. And it was, yeah, it was truly as partners. So those relationships don't disappear when you, when you come home. I mean, these are our colleagues. These are our brothers and sisters in arms. And, and we care a lot about, um, you know, how things are going for them, their safety, their survival, and for their country, because, I mean, they're fighting on the front line of democracy for all of us right now. The outcome of this matters to everyone. It does. Um, if it doesn't stop here, where does it stop? Where does it stop? Yeah. And do we really want to live in a world where the path to victory is committing heinous war crimes and bombing shelters with children in them or maternity wards? Like, is this is this what we want to say is okay? This is not civilized warfare at all. No. And I look forward to the day when we can hold Russia accountable. Just hearing all the things that you've done with, with Ukraine already, you've, or you gave them such amazing tools that, that are now being put into play to save their lives and, and protect them. And you continue to give. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. But I do want to be clear. Yeah. I mean, that was only successful because of their efforts as well. And we're certainly not looking to take any credit for the heroic defense that, that they're mounting right now. Well said. There's so much of this, you know, that they had to push through on their own, even without our assistance. It's their commitment every step of the way to reforming their military at the same time that they are fighting a war and trying to reform their entire security structure. Like, that is commendable, and that's, that's why they're having such success today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you.